We are live. Welcome to Four Thoughts of Our Founders. I am Herman Felton, one of the founders of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. And as usual, I'm in the lab with my man, Greg Dees. What up, Greg? Uh, in absentia, as uh, people like uh, Dr. M. Christopher Brown would say, uh, my uh, counterparts, uh, George French, newly minted president of Clark Atlanta University, Wilberforce University's president, Alfred Anthony Pingard, and Southern University at Shreveport, uh, vice chancellor for student affairs and enrollment management, Dr. Melva Williams are absent today. And I'm flying solo, of course, with the co-pilot. Uh, but I'm going to have a conversation tonight um, about a topic that is uh, burning up the airwaves, uh, pretty much. Um, I want to, in full disclosure, um, say that um, I... Well, let me back up and say that we're going to have a conversation tonight about uh, some of the central um, players, uh, if you will, in um, what has occurred here lately. Recently, a um, former UPenn uh, professor was uh, accused of uh, creating a hypersexual uh, work environment. Um, and, uh, she has since left, uh, and been well received at Rutgers university. Um, there was, uh, some allegations there and, um, and now we want to talk about, uh, this person who happens to be, um, coined the, uh, expert of all things HBCU. And she, um, now has, um, you know, I think it's safe to say a, a cloud over uh, over her. And I, I think in fairness that she deserves to um, have that cloud lifted uh, if, in fact, um, an investigation was conducted and nothing was found. Um, but um, we do know that an investigation was conducted. Uh, we do know that some things occurred. Um, people were shifted. The, the graduate students were moved from under her purview, and then they brought in some PhD students. Um, there was some um, uh, training uh, that that occurred. We don't know who, uh, as the article states, some people had uh, to go to training, uh, but we don't know who those some people are. And more importantly, uh, the article alleged um, that uh, the university, UPenn, uh, has not uh, informed the complainants who were, um, according to the article uh, that was initially broke by Inside Higher Ed, uh, co-workers and um, members of the center and graduate students. Uh, according to those individuals, they have not been made um, um, aware of the findings of the investigation. She has now landed um, what some would say uh, is um, a chair that um, folks are not particularly happy about. Um, and that is the Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor um, chair at uh, Rutgers University. Um, very prestigious uh, space uh, is the chair, the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Chair in Education. Uh, he was a member there for 15 years, and we'll get into that. But that's the backdrop. UPenn um, professor alleged to have uh, made some sexual um, harassing statements and, and, and fostered an environment that is non-conducive to an open and safe space, leaves uh, Rutgers, um, and falls into a space, and here, I think, is the rubbing point. There has been a great deal of silence um, from within the HBCU space, and so we're gonna we're gonna get into that. Um, but I'm gonna start 
with um, uh, providing context, as I think I can. First, uh, educating folks on who um, Dr. Proctor uh, is and his legacy. Um, and then talking about uh, the researcher, uh, then moving on to Jared Carter of HBCU Digest, who followed up um, with a really nice piece uh, behind the inside um, higher ed um, article, the initial article. And uh, quite frankly, I, I will use this as a platform to respond to the many questions that I've um, been asked by um, a ton of health fellows, um, by a ton of uh, my colleagues, a ton of folks in my village. Um, and then uh, we can talk about, you know, what's next. So uh, in full disclosure, I want to say that I have met um, uh, the researcher a couple of times. My first time I met when I was doing uh, work for my dissertation back in 2006 or 2007, uh, at that time, my chair uh, said, if the person who is responsible for the bulk of your uh, research is alive and you can get an opportunity to um, meet them, go. It will make your dissertation that much richer. So I met uh, the researcher at that time. Uh, and then, uh, interestingly enough, um, Dr. George T. French Jr. and I, when we were starting health, uh, went out to uh, the center, UPenn, back in 2014, I believe. Um, I think uh, the purpose of that conversation was to, in that meeting, was to put her on notice that we were getting ready to start um, what we believe to be a vital um, endeavor, which was to create a pipeline of um, leaders um, to take their rightful place at HBCUs. Those are the only two um, uh, times I've seen her on a panel here or there. I also, in uh, September of 2017, wrote an article in response to um, her assertion that there were no um, agencies uh, or centers or organizations that were doing training for HBCU uh, executives. I find that uh, found it particularly troubling um, because um, it's just simply not true. Um, I waited for a week or two for um, my uh, elders and peers to respond, um, and I could not sit on my hands uh, without responding to the flat-out lie. Um, I actually reached out to Jared Carter and um, and said to him, "Look, I'm." thinking about writing a piece. Um, and uh, we came up with um, a piece that I think um, appropriately addressed uh, her assertion that there was nothing. Uh, a simple Google query uh, would have yielded a bevy or a treasure trove of information. NAFIO, UNCF, um, CIC, uh, MLI, uh, and then you can go on to the individual presidents that were creating leaders. Uh, one would be um, remiss if they didn't acknowledge the work of Dr. Ham uh, Harvey at Hampton, uh, Edison O. Jackson, who has done some amazing things, uh, Dr. Uh, Dorothy Yancey. Um, there are, you know, a dozen or so presidents who have disciples uh, who have led um, uh HBCUs at the highest level. And so I found um, uh, her, her article and her assertion while announcing her center um, to just simply um, be misleading. Uh, and I thought it was injurious um, to um, the community uh, to allege uh, that there was nothing here. 
Um, and I, I just know our space um, to be more than um, a space that didn't have the wherewithal um, to, to have foresight. We may not have done it uh, in a space and place where uh, it was uh, notarized by uh, public foundations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, but the work has been done. And, and I wanted to be uh, very clear that this was not about health back in 2017. While we had already did, uh, you know, two years worth of work, um, I did not mention the work that we were doing because I didn't need to. There were so many other people um, who have been paving the way for us. Um, and so, um, so I wanted to get that out there. I do not uh, dislike the lady. Uh, I, I have no respect for the work, uh, particularly when it comes to the standards that researchers are held to. And now uh, with a simple, um, you know, statement like that, one would have to ask, you know, the validity of all the research. Um, if a person at a Carnegie designated research one Ivy League institution couldn't do a simple Google query and uh, find out that there were, in fact, uh, leadership spaces uh, that were currently and have in the past, um, you know, uh, paved way uh, for the pipeline. If you couldn't do that, I'm not quite sure um, that you didn't take uh, shortcuts in other spaces, but that's a whole nother subject. Uh, what I want to do is share with uh, you guys uh, a little bit of information about Dr. Proctor. Um, I, uh, since this came out, um, have been uh, fascinated with the intersection of his work and the people who um, he has either worked with or um, inspired. Uh, and those who have continued to take on his legacy. Um, I um, gave my life to the Lord at Bethel Baptist Institutional Church down in Jacksonville, Florida, under um, the leadership of um, Reverend Dr. Rudolph McKissick Sr. and Jr., Pastor Jr. Um, and I knew about... Um, Virginia Union and Samuel D. Witt Proctor uh, School of Theology before I even went to college um, because of the reverence uh, that they had for him. And uh, Dr. Uh, McKissick was uh, junior, that is, was really, really proud of uh, his affiliation with Virginia Union, uh, the uh, D. Samuel D. Witt Proctor uh, School of Theology. Very, very proud of it. So, um, so I knew that, but here's some things that I didn't know. You know, he was uh, born in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, his grandparents uh, attended Hampton Institute. Um, his parents uh, uh, both met while they were at Norfolk Mission College. Um, and that uh, Dr. Proctor was raised Baptist. Um, and he, uh, worked at the, uh, Naval shipyard for some time. He graduated from high school and went to Virginia state college, um, on a music scholarship and, uh, played saxophone. Um, he is a, I, I mean, I should have known this, um, but it's no surprise. He's a member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity incorporated. Um, but he he left uh, Virginia State in uh, 1939 and went to a naval apprentice school. Um, went there to become a ship ship fitter, and I think um, in reading the materials now um, that he knew that there was a calling much greater. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a ship fitter. I think he knew that God had something else um, on his um, on his life. He then uh, returned to Virginia Union, uh, married his classmate, Miss Bessie Tate, um, and uh, graduated in 42. He studied at Penn for a year, um, and then he enrolled at Crozer Theological Seminary in Upland, Pennsylvania. Some mighty good folk went there uh, to include uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
he was a student there when um, um, Dr. Uh, Proctor was there, and um, he uh, received his uh, Bachelor of Divinity uh, degree in 1945 uh, from uh, Crozer. Um, then he accepted a call to become the pastor. Um, he was in Providence. He did a fellowship at Yale, um, and he split his time between New Haven, Connecticut, uh, and Boston. And he moved to Boston and rolling into the Boston University School of Theology. He got his Ph.D. in theology from Boston University in 1950. Um, Proctor was invited to give uh, a lecture at Crozer Theological Seminary, his alma mater. And it was there where he first met and befriended Martin Luther King, who was a student at Crozer at the time. Um, and Proctor uh, told King about works of uh, uh, Fosdick and Niebuhr um, and, uh, and especially Fosdick's uh, The Modern Use of the Bible. And I think these um, really uh, spoke volumes and resonated um, with the branding of uh, his Christianity, the liberal uh, Christianity, which is what Crozer uh, really taught. Um, after that, he went on to Virginia Union, and there the brother shot up. Um, meteoric rise from dean to vice president, and then he was appointed uh, president of Virginia Union. Um, and in 55, <laughs> you know, we talk about being young presidents, et cetera, et cetera. But I think Harvey was young in his 30s. Um, Norman Francis was young in his 30s. And to add to that list, uh, Dr. Proctor was 33 when he became uh, president. In 1955, uh, Martin Luther King invited Proctor to Montgomery, Alabama to the boys, uh, boycott. And Proctor there delivered his spring lecture series. Um, and he was one of also one of the several black leaders. And this is this is powerful. I was really happy to learn this about him. Uh, he was invited to the White House by. Uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, and this was in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education, where uh, Eisenhower had the audacity uh, to ask leaders to to ease off their demands uh, for civil rights uh, for African Americans. And I think it would be no surprise to you all to know that uh, Proctor and others had the audacity to refuse that request. Um, during his time as president at Virginia Union, uh, he traveled uh, extensively. Um, he did some solid work, um, did some great work at Virginia Union, and was essentially um, appointed um, and called to run North Carolina A&T, which was um, the College of, of North Carolina, the Agricultural and Technical College of, of Carolina at the time. Um, and he went, uh, arriving in the middle of the Greensboro sit-ins, um, he didn't um, publicly support the student protesters um, because he thought that private um, diplomacy uh, was more effective. And what we've come to understand is that while folk are raising cane in the street, somebody's got to go in the belly of the beast. So in a lot of ways, he was right. But we also know that those students who sat uh, at that counter were right as well. Um, he uh, was behind the scenes. He helped uh, other administrators raise money for those students who were um, arrested uh, and helped them find lawyers. And and at that time, Jesse Jackson was the Reverend Jesse Jackson was the college's student body president and quarterback of the college's football team. Um, this is just some fascinating stuff. Just, you know, stuff you should know. Uh, <laughs> Proctor had uh, strong ties to the uh, Kennedy administration, um, and he took a leave of absence uh, from A&T to serve as the associate director of the Peace Corps, traveled extensively, um, came back, um, and upon his return, uh, he resumed his presidential duties. Uh, he took like a leave of absence for a year. Um, and in 64, he decided that he was going to devote himself to public service in the wake of uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. So he left A&T. 
Um, and I think when you look back, all of these calculated, seemingly calculated moves, I think were divinely orchestrated um, by God because his impact at every place, um, I think, has been immeasurable. Um, he spent a year as president of uh, National Councils of Churches. Um, he was a supporter of Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty. Uh, he served in the Office of Economic Region. Um, and he accompanied um, Herbert Humphrey and Thurgood Marshall um, in 68 to Africa, where they spoke out against political corruption. Um, he was asked to testify before a Senate. Um, and he was a part of the folks who started work, uh, work study and Upward Bound. And in uh, 69, he was invited by Rutgers to give a lecture uh, on the one year anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, and there, um, Proctor, um, the newly established position of professor of education, uh, the Martin Luther King Distinguished Professor of Education, uh, was offered to Proctor shortly thereafter. And he accepted and held that position until um, um, 1984. Um in 72, Proctor also assumed the pastorate of the 18,000-member Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Um, under the Carter administration, he served as a special advisor on ethics. Um, and uh, who knew that he was, um, I, I certainly didn't, um, the, the leader of Abyssinia at a time where he groomed Calvin Butts, uh, and he served as... Proctor's associate pastor, uh, and they built, uh, you know, some developmental corporation, uh, Abyssinia Development Corporation, and built 50 housing units for needy families. Um, Proctor resigned his uh, pastorate in 1989 and was replaced uh, by Butts, um, and he later spent time as an adjunct faculty member at Vanderbilt, United Theological Seminary, King University, and Duke University. The brother has been acknowledged for his work in so many different ways and uh, has received over 45 honorary degrees. Um, in 2003, uh, there were some fine giants um, who envisioned uh, that uh, Dr. Um, Samuel DeWitt Proctor's legacy uh, meant a lot. And they developed the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, SDPC. Um, and they, uh, you know, with the hope and faith, uh, they founded this organization uh, that this uh, would simply focus on what was proclaimed in the fourth chapter of Luke. And that was to set captives free and to give liberty to those who are oppressed. Um, and this was envisioned by three founders and theological uh, giants, Dr. Iva uh, Carruthers, Dr. Frederick D. Haynes III, and the one and only Dr. Jeremiah A. Wright Jr., who met, prayed, and talked about giving birth to a particular something uh, that could speak to the needs of those who were thirsty for sound biblical knowledge and committed social advocacy. Four of their colleague, colleagues then joined the discussion. In that conversation, the spark of an idea became what is now the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, a national network that serves thousands of pastors, lay leaders, and the next generation of those working for social justice. So right now, we can say that this brother, Dr. Proctor, was responsible for, um, well, he moved in the space of education, in the space of politics, um, he was a civil rights activist um, and an educator. I mean, that's that just one of those making an imprint in, in one of those spaces uh, would be uh, pretty amazing. But he didn't stop there. Um, Rutgers, after his tenure there, um, decided that um, it was time to honor uh, Dr. Proctor. Um, and he was the first African-American faculty member at both the school and the university to have an endowed professorship named for him. And uh, he uh, now um, you know, has the 
um, good fortune, good, great fortune of having a legacy uh, that spans both in politics and education and social activism, so, social activism um, and uh, religion. Uh, and that is that that's a lot, um, I think, uh, to say the least. Um, so. The intersection of Dr. Proctor and his uh, legacy, his work, um, think about work study now. <laughs> And think about Upward Bound. I mean, those were really about, those spaces were really about the least of us. The advent of those programs uh, came from someone looking at um, people who had potential and capacity, but didn't have means. Um, And he created a way, not only created a way, he got the federal government um, to create a way uh, for us. Uh, to buy into what he envisioned, I would imagine, um, to give um, the marginalized an opportunity um, um, to compete. And so his imprint, um, I think it's indelible to say the least. Um, and I'm, I'm just so grateful to, um, you know, really dig into who he is. I got a text from a good buddy of mine who is a preacher and he wanted to share with me <laughs> that um, he uh, is, and many of those who find themselves uh, as members of the cloth and in the clergy uh, follow uh, Dr. Proctor. Um, and one of his great books uh, is entitled, We Have This Ministry, The Heart of a Pastor's Vocation. And if you know me, you, all, you, you know that I always talk about vocation and personal vocation. Uh, and if you're fortunate enough to be doing what God calls you to do, um, it does not feel like labor. And me and my good friend Dion Johnson were talking about just that uh, and how so many people uh, who only know of the pastor of um, the, the work that Dr. Proctor did as a pastor. And then there are some who only know the work he did as an activist. And then there are some who only know the work that he did uh, as an educator and administrator, but uh, his life was full. And I think uh, we would uh, all do uh, him well by, by um, finding what our passion is uh, and advocating like nobody's business for it and being excellent in it. All right. Um, let's talk about the researcher. Uh, Dr. Gassman has been uh, doing research on HBCUs for quite some time. I think uh, most of her work uh, came uh, and the uh, entree into the space uh, came when uh, she did some work with UNCF under Bill Gray, I believe it was. Um, maybe her dissertation work, and that gave her an opportunity um, to really get in uh, and get great knowledge about our institutions. Um, she has been for a very long time um, the leading voice uh, and considered uh, an expert uh, in HBCUs. Um, so that's that. Um, I distinctively remember uh, it being about historically black colleges and then moving to the broader audience of MSIs, minority serving institutes. Um, I uh, don't like the conflation of putting HBCUs under minority serving institutions. Um, The way in which we came about, no other uh, group uh, of people, Uh, can espouse uh, that um, uh, that that way in which we came about Uh, and we were denied and our institutions were founded because we couldn't go anywhere else. And that designation needs to be pristine, clear uh, that we are historically black colleges and universities. And I, I just really feel like we should not clump ourselves into this space of minority serving institutions, because if we want to really be technical, uh, all institutions are minority serving institutions, but all of them are not historically black colleges and universities. So want to be clear about that. How did we get here? Well, we got here because uh, a young lady um, 
uh, wrote an article about uh, from the inside um, higher uh, and it was titled Top Scholar Accused of Creating a Culture of Sexual Harassment at Penn, report says. Now she's a uh, distinguished chair at um, the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Chair of Education at Rutgers University. We know that this article was written um, and now there seems to be problems about um one, our silence, and when I say our, um, leaders in the HBCU space, or the broader space um, in HBCU land, Derek Carter uh, did a podcast where um, he really, um, you know, gave uh, his thoughts and the others on the podcast about um, the silence um, and how uh, for some time there have been, um, you know, thoughts about is, uh, you know, a person, how can a person, um, really speak for us? Um, and when I say us, our HBCUs, um, and, um, and it not be one of us, so to speak. Um, that is something that a lot of people have problems with heartburns with. Uh, I personally think that if folk are doing the work, uh, in earnest, I don't care what color you are. Um, I think uh, you that the only uh, uh, precursor for me is that a person is authentic about uh, this space and you genuinely care about it. Um, we know that um, Dr. Gassman has made a lot of money uh, personally, um, you know, uh, foundations and corporations have flocked to her, um, have supported her work with millions and millions of dollars. Uh, there are questions about the impact of that work and and how much uh, of those funds um, and what has been the benefit um, of those uh, research dollars to specifically uh, the benefit of HBCUs. Those are all fair questions. Um, I think you know people have the right to ask those questions. Uh, but this article is is pretty pretty um, pretty tough in that it is asking questions um, that are rooted um, out of um, allegations of sexual harassment, a culture of sexual harassment. And uh, there were some, to, to be very clear, uh, there were uh, co-workers and um, members of her staff who have group text messages um, who made a formal complaint uh, to the university, the university, UPenn being the university, uh, according to uh, the reports, uh, conducted a um, investigation, an independent vet investigation. We do not know what the findings of that investigation were. Uh, but what we do know is that there was some movement. There was some um, redrafting of some um, or strengthening of some policies and quote unquote, some people had to attend some training. Don't know what some people means. I don't know who some people were, uh, but we do know that um, there were enough findings to dictate that folk had to go to training. People had to move. Some people had um, uh, resignations immediately uh, after the findings. So there were uh, some some questions there. And here's where I think um, in fairness uh, to everyone, um, and I think this is where a lot of my colleagues um, sort of understand uh, treading lightly here, right? Because I, I you, you get anonymous letters um, to your board chairs all the time about what you're doing and what you're not doing. You get employees who lodge complaints against you all, all the time. So as a president, I am super sensitive to these allegations. However, um, I think in fairness to the individuals, according to the document, says that they have not been made aware of the findings or the allegations. And quite frankly, in fairness to Dr. Gassman, um, I think there needs to be, um, you know, a, a sharing of, of the findings, uh, because without that, there's a cloud. 
um, and uh, folk will be left to come up with their own conclusions. Now, people may not care. She may not care. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, there now has to be some really tough questions asked, uh, both to Rutgers, who we now know what their position is. They're happy to have um, Dr. Gassman. Um, and they say that she's been uh, thoroughly vetted. Um, and uh, the next question to that is, and to which uh, vetting process um, did you rely on and what did that vetting process uh, uncover? That's a logical question and a fair question as well. Um, and then there are questions to funders. Uh, we know that foundations, corporations have ethos that are espoused by the founders of these uh, philanthropic machines and they expect um, for folks to have um, really high standards um, and, and how um, they purport themselves and conduct themselves. And decorum is extremely important. Uh, we know that. I know that as a fundraiser myself coming up the ranks, um, you know, I, I was very keen on when approaching a foundation uh, to know their ethos and to know their um, beliefs and their goals and who they gave to and why they gave to and what their mission statement was. And to also make sure, uh, that I understood as much about the culture as possible. Um, and I dare say, uh, if I even had, uh, an institution that had, uh, you know, financial challenges, let alone the president was accused or, uh, you know, someone attached to the funding was accused of, um, you know, a sexual harassment type situation. I wouldn't even go um, to a foundation because uh, we know that uh, brand alignment uh, is critically important. And folks want to know, um, you know, that they're partnering with people that have the same values. Um, so I from my vantage point, I see a lot of different uh, alignments here and questions. Um, Jared uh, raised uh, some really good questions. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, chief among them uh, is, uh, you know, how do we, um, f first, let me, let me back up and say this. I think uh, what we have to do, I think this is a liminal moment for, for HBCUs. Uh, and I say that because um, last uh, spring, uh, early spring or late spring in May, to be precise, uh, on the campus of Morehouse University, uh, Morehouse College, uh, Robert Smith did two things. He paved the way for a bunch of young brothers to have a fresh start. And secondly, he said something that was very poignant, powerful, in fact. And he said that we are enough for ourselves paraphrasing here but essentially what he was saying was that we need to understand that we are enough and when you think about um and and i i think about this and we think about this at health in particular we've had the the opportunity to to interface with over 200 fellows but um this process of giving service uh, to the space has allowed us to come in contact with thousands of um, fellows and or individuals, um, young and old and in the middle of their process um, uh, that are in this space and that are committed to this space. Not only are they in this space, they're not just cohabitating in this space, they are thriving. The research that has been done at our HBCUs is first class, right? The students that are leaving our institutions are first class. The administrators that are administrating at our HBCUs are first class. So the question is, are we enough for ourselves? Ice water is as cold as it is at 711 Wiley Avenue than it is at UT Austin. I know that. The question is, do we, and do we believe that assertion? 
I would submit to you that we don't. There's not collaboration that happens in spaces that look like ours, that are run by us, that are made for us, that produces excellence. That, th that type of collaboration should be bountiful. It should be plentiful. Um, and when we do that, we will then and only then will we be able, I believe, um, to assert that we are more than enough, that the, the solutions to the network can be found within the network. Stop running to consultants and other HBCUs, or not HBCUs, but other PWIs thinking that they have the solutions for our problems. I um, believe that we can find any answer within the network. This is a watershed moment for us. This allows us to ask questions about whether or not there are some fine researchers at HBCUs, whether or not there's research and, and collaboration or enough collaboration to build a center for the study of HBCUs, not MSIs, but HBCUs. Why is that important? Because a young president like myself coming into my first presidency would have been more than happy to receive a dossier about failed presidencies, successful presidencies, how to legislate, how to do this, some information that would have been helpful for me along my journey. Now, is it somebody's responsibility to give me that? No, but it would be nice if you have a center that studies our institutions that can give me some empirical data that would help me move an institution along the way. Why can't we do that for each other? Right. Why can't we be the first person that the Chronicle of Higher Education or the New York Times or the Washington Post or Diverse Magazine uh, and anybody else, higher calls why are they not calling a professor or an administrator at one of our HBCUs? Why? Because someone came in, did the work, did the research and established themselves as the researcher. Not mad with that. Where I have a problem is when I listen to people who have a problem with that. And I oftentimes I am, you know, I think it's a surprise to some people, uh, but I oftentimes respond by, hey, she's doing the work. Yeah, be quiet. Right. Go do something. I'm comfortable in saying that I'm not willing to sit around and allow somebody um, to take control of something that I eat, sleep, breathe and live for. Hence health. Me and a bunch of my friends said, you know what? There's a problem with leadership. We believe not the current leadership, but the fact that the pipeline, what we're hearing from our colleagues is that nobody wants to stay. Everybody wants to leave. Everybody's passionate, but they don't see a way forward. Well, we said, you know, we're going to do something about that. Right. So that's action. That's seeing a problem and, and, and doing action. We're practitioners, all that writing stuff. And there are a ton of y'all out there that are researchers, that are fine PhDs, that love to write. That ain't my thing, right? Staying in my lane. But there are folk who have been around for years, who have been just as frustrated for years, that have decided to just simply complain. So you can't complain. You can't um, talk if you're not willing to do anything. It's much less like vote, much like voting or not voting, right? You have no voice if you use, if you don't use your voice. You have none. So what a shared moment. For me, I look at this as an opportunity for someone, some people, some things, some places to say, you know, we appreciate the work. Now it's time to do it from within, right? And we can support ourselves to do strong enough work to where it is recognized by folk. I think a lot of times people want to go out and be recognized by other organizations and other voices to be validated. 
I care to be validated with inside the space. Inside the space means much more to me than outside the space. Does that mean I'm racist? No. Does that mean I do not desire to dwell with others? No. There's so much work to be done inside the space. And until we get the space together, then we can look outward. But I always hearken back to what the brothers and sisters of the Harlem Renaissance did. And even before that, Rosewood. And before that, the Black Wall Street. Their product was so excellent and undeniable that folk had to come get what they had, regardless of who was giving it. Right. So that's why excellence is the standard and should be. So what are you saying, Herman? I'm saying that if we are excellent in our space, we will be recognized by others who will be enamored with what we're doing from outside the space and the support will come. But internally, internally facing is where we should always be because we work, we toil, we labor, whatever you want to call it about your vocation at HBCUs. And I believe without any hesitation that 85, 90 percent of the folk who are at HBCUs are there because they want to make a difference. And I also believe that those same 85 to 95 percent, 90 people, 85 to 90 percent of those people can labor anywhere else. But they're choosing to labor at our nation's gyms. Right. So there's some questions that we need to ask. I think one of them (laughs) that that Jared asked um, And this is this is um, taking a step back, but he he had a question where he'd ask, what would we do if she were the victim and the perpetrator were black? That juxtaposition juxtaposition um, is something that all of us, I think, want to ask that question. Right. That's that's where everybody wants to go. We want to know. What if Barack Obama was saying what Donald Trump is saying right now? How would he be treated? Right. We all want to know that. And and quickly, you immediately think we're in an era of me too, you too, we too, they too. You can ill afford if you care about your career to even give the hint of impropriety. This is what we're believed. This is what our mentors and our village tells us as a black man, you better make sure that your nose is clean because you don't get a chance to do what others get to do. Plain and simple. You don't get second chances. And they oftentimes look at um, political figures who are black when they do some of the same things that non-black members do. They're castrated and done. Other folks go away, come back. Football coaches, black. They don't get a chance to be a head coach again. They go away. White coaches go away for a year or two, come back, boom. It's been very clear to us that the rules are what the rules are, plain and simple. And Jimmy Jenkins would always tell me, he who has the gold rules. That's the golden rule, right? And so if you want your own, if you want to create your own rules, create your own stuff. All right. Not going off on a tangent. I'm going to bring it back and loop it back in here for a second. Going back to his question, what would happen if the perpetrator was black? Well, I asked a couple of folks in my in my village and what they all said, there was a resounding thread or, or tread uh, and trend in their response, which was. In this day and age right now, their careers would be gone. But they all thought that 10, 15 years ago, if those allegations came against them, they would have the cachet because of their work ethic, their work performance, et cetera, et cetera, to at least fight the claims and prove their innocence. They'd have the time to do that, right? But now they all say, if it were me, 
I'd be gone, period. The allegation would be enough to sully my reputation and I would be damaged goods. Those are the pervasive thoughts of our of, of, of folks in my village. And then I have peers who just flat out ain't saying nothing, <laughs> just don't have an opinion. Right. And I get it. Everybody has lanes. Uh, everybody's got uh, fires. Uh, everybody's got stuff to put out, stuff to deal with. I get that. Um, but I think for me, um, I've been asked a question from day one. As soon as that article dropped, I was inundated, um, you know, inboxes, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it, phone calls, texts. Yo, what's going on? What y'all think about this? What is health going to say? Are y'all going to write a position paper? Right. And so initially you're like, Ooh, wow. Look at this. <laughs> what this is, you know, Hmm. You have those thoughts. And then you say, as an administrator, you say, well, what we do know is that there's always going to be two sides to the story. Right. And what we don't know is the other side to the story. What we do know is there are text messages and there was some, some an investigation going on and there were some changes made. Now I know as a president uh, that in fairness, there are times when an investigation is conducted, um, nothing is found. And then there are times when an investigation, you find that your policies are antiquated they're not uh, commiserate with the date and age. Um, you need to uh, shift those. You, you carefully shift those, send those out to the broader populace and move on. But when you uh, send folks to training, when you shift one group from one side of the campus to the other side of the campus, folks are, are you know, are resigning. I mean, there's, there's just a little smoke there, you know, that, that can only be uh, doused uh, with some water of an investigation that clears folks, right? So there's a rush to judgment. Sure, everybody gets that. Everybody wants that. There are even some folks who want her to be guilty, right? Um, and there are some folks who don't want her to be. I mean, she's got some, uh, some folks who are defending her. Um, I hasten to say that, you know, I just don't know that, you know, um, if the shoe were on the other foot, that there would be many to defend. I just don't know. But based on what has happened in the past, um, I'd, I'd say very comfortably that, uh, if it were me, I'd probably be placed on leave until an investigation is done. And I probably wouldn't be able to come back. The outcry of, um, of the sexually, um, charged space, bullying, intimidating, all those things, um, is, is a lot. Um, and particularly in this day and age. So I think, um, it, it's pretty tough. So, the question that Jared asks is fair. The second question that many have asked is why are y'all so quiet? I think I've touched on it a little bit, um, but I, I think it's because people want to wait and see. Um, but I don't know that you have to wait and see anything. Um, everybody's closed the book. So I don't know if there's anything else to see. And all you can do is go on what is out there. And again, we know what's out there. There's, you know, allegations. And, and there are a lot of people who have positions, um, but don't see that they have a dog in the race. I'll just say that. And, um, and, and that's fine. But I think when, um, the rubber meets the road, uh, and as a person who, um, believes that, um, we have a charge to keep, uh, have a duty to say something. And so I think out of this comes um, some some really, really tough questions that we have to ask ourselves internally as I close this up, wrap it up. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to allow someone else to control our narrative? And when I say that, I don't mean 
um, that uh, it is white versus black or brown versus black. The question is, is if whether or not we have the agency, which I believe fervently we do, um, to tell our narrative, our story, the way we know that only we can tell it. Period. The other question is, um, is why have we been so silent? Another question, uh, if I may add, is what next? What next? What happens now? Do we um, allow this to be a news cycle or two and then move away from it? Do we allow uh, researchers and young brothers and sisters who have been through the process, who are screaming that me too, me too, this happened to me too, who are screaming to us that this has happened and they've entrusted individuals um, only to have their careers um, shattered or dampened or delayed. Um, And how does and where does an NDA come from operating a center for the study of MSIs? How are those things all circulating in a space that hovers over um, the HBCU um, community? What duty do we as administrators owe to the space in responding to this question. I know that there are some of my colleagues that probably say none. Hell, this is a non-issue. This is a non-starter. It's an allegation after all. I see it a little differently, but I respect those who see it from a different prism. But the pervasive question for me is not whether she did something, is not whether or not, UPN is going to release the findings. It's not whether or not uh, Rutgers is going to retract uh, the offer. All those things we know aren't going to happen. Why? Because it is alleged to have happened to a marginalized community, period. Right? You want to you wanna think about, hear about, and talk about irony and the theater of absurdity. I am not crazy about reciting um, definitions, but I'm writing a piece. I'm working on a piece with some others. Um, We are working on a piece uh, entitled marginalized and powerless privilege, class, race, and inequality in the ivory tower coming out pretty soon. A couple of days. And I wanted to really look at, um, you hear the term ivory tower all the time. And I said to myself, let me just go look at the definition of the ivory tower. And boy, do you want to talk about, um, an eerie feeling, um, that came over, uh, something like this was this was fascinating to me. Merriam-Webster defines the ivory tower, uh, and I think it captures the sentiment, the precise sentiment of UPN and Rutgers and how they handled um, the responses to these troubling allegations. The definition states an impractical, often escapist attitude marked by aloof lack of concern with or interest in particular matters of urgent problems. Aloof lack of concern with or interest in a particular matter of urgent problems. I would gander to say 
that sexual harassment, bullying, et cetera, et cetera, is an urgent matter. I would also say that the response to these allegations has been aloof. Further, it states a secluded place that affords the means of treating practical issues with impractical, often escapist attitudes, especially a place of higher learning. That, <laughs> I think, clearly captures what had happened and how the ivory tower responded to what had happened. Or in fairness, the allegations to what had happened and the response to the allegations of what had happened. At the end of the day, facts matters. We shouldn't be uh, in a rush to judge. And, you know, what I've heard when inquiring about the silence um, has, has been all over the place. The spectrum has been a lot of different places. Uh, but my, my simple response to those and all parties involved really is release the findings so that we can all govern ourselves accordingly, quote unquote. And otherwise, if you don't do that, the researcher will have a cloud over her head. And if she's been absolved, she deserves to be cleared. But if she has not been, she deserves to be held accountable. That, my brothers and sisters, uh, is my take on um, this uh, cloud we find hovering over our space and the center that did the research and the person that has been responsible for creating a center for research. Um, I am uh, without question uh, still on the side of uh, fair uh, and um, practical um, advocacy and uh, judicial processes there all day long. I've been accused of stuff happens if you're an administrator you're going to be accused of stuff right never anything like this um and never will be but um i think why this reverberates over our community so much so is that um i think there's a pervasive feeling that there is some strong validity uh to the allegations but uh as we know um UPenn and Rutgers uh, have said what they have said and they're not saying anymore. And uh, one could only ask, uh, is it because these are allegations that were asserted by uh, a quote unquote marginalized group or uh, is it no one's business? Either of those still leave a lot to be desired. Um, either positions, I think, uh, leave a lot to be desired. And I think much more is old. So that, uh, concludes the seventh or eighth episode of four cap four thoughts of our founders. Um, the higher education leadership foundation is a nonprofit organization designed to increase the pipeline of leadership at HBCUs. We are uh, conducting our um, 10th, is it? Is it the 10th cohort? Yeah, I should know that. I should know the 10th Greek letter alphabet. Um, the Kappa cohort at uh, Wiley College uh, in December, the 12th uh, through the 15th. Um, the class has already been made, unfortunately. Um, we have over... Um, uh, accepted and we're hoping that some folk can't get their money together because <laughs> we don't, don't want to have 40 people here. Uh, but in seriousness, um, we, we are, um, also in the process of finalizing, um, a relationship that I think is going to be transformational. I know we've been talking about it for a minute, um, but we've been interfacing, uh, with this organization. And I can tell you before this month is over with, uh, there'll be an announcement, uh, that will be impactful. That will allow health to um, have uh, the agency of uh, a reputable um, uh, organization with 
in the network, uh, within the network. And um, we make no bones about it. We don't have a problem with, um, you know, folks outside the network. But we thought our first transformational uh, relationship should be inside the network. And um, and fortunately for us, um, that organization feels the same. Um, I can be reached at um, H Felton eighty seven eleven on Instagram at Herman Felton on um, on Twitter uh, Herman J Felton Jr on Facebook um, and Herman at H E Leaders dot org uh, for your comments um, I'm certainly. Uh, proud of the work uh, that we do at Health. I miss my partners, uh, but we will be up in D.C. Uh, and we're going to go live in D.C. during the White House initiative on HBCUs. Uh, Greg is going to talk to his boss and see if he can take a couple of days off and come up to um, uh, uh, D.C. during the White House initiative on HBCUs. I'm that's a joke. I'm, I happen to be Greg's boss, and, and I'm all, <laughs> he's coming with us. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to do some podcasting. So if any of our health fellows are up in the D.C. area um, uh, next week during the White House Initiative on HBCUs, um, please uh, hit us up. I would love to see you. Uh, and if there are any other folks out there that are interested in the work that we do, uh, don't be bashful. Come through, holler. Um, I hope that people like Jared Carter um, and all those who are writing who feel that they should be uh, voicing um, their opinions and dissent about what they feel uh, is a double standard. I hope that we will all do it. I hope that we're all held accountable uh, to the highest standards uh, and that fair is fair. Um, I hope that those things reign, reign true. Um, and rain and ring true. Um, and, uh, I pray that God covers all of you, uh, this day and every other day. So, um, we got anything else we want to say, Greg D's think we're good. It's been fun. It's been real. Um, I hope, uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Peace. Peace out boy scouts. <laughs>